Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. G.K. Chesterton once famously said that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Jesus, uh, when he's addressing the issues that were facing him of the day, does something incredibly profound, where people's conversation want to dwell within the symptomatic and with the ideal and with the different uh, arguments of the day. Jesus, again and again, goes back to the human heart as the heart of the human problem. And then we find this story here in Mark chapter 7 where he, just does, he, just, he does just that. In verse 1 it says, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they gave their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they came to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their foods with their defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And he left the crowd and entered the house. His disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into into their hearts, but into their stomach and out of their own body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil's thoughts come. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit. Lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, in this this passage in Mark chapter 7, there's some things we have to untangle here a bit because this is a very culturally contextualized argument that's happening here. There's a lot going on around cleanliness, around this idea of the tradition of the elders, so I want to just kind of unpack that a little bit so it can help us understand where is the meaning, what's the application for us today. First, just to help us understand cleanliness, 
Uh, when you think of cleanliness in referred to the Bible, think less hygiene and think more about kind of ceremonial, ceremonially clean so that they're not, they can actually continue to be the people of God. Now, according to the Torah, only the priests had to wash hands before entering the temple. But what that was later extended to all Jewish people would wash their hands many times a day. I was in Israel a couple of years ago and we got to observe uh, people coming together for the Sabbath meal and there was a special sink with special basins that were used to wash their hands. This is a, a, a deep part of kind of the Jewish tradition. And within the, within the Torah, there's all sorts of laws of what would make someone unclean. And by unclean, meaning that you could not associate with the people of God, you could not enter into the presence of God. Um, and so uh, if you had any sort of interaction with a woman after childbirth, corpses, creeping things, idols, human extractions, certain classes of people, such as lepers, Samaritans, and Gentiles, uh, you, would be, uh, you would be kind of rendered unclean. So there's this whole conversation going around, on around the Pharisees calling Jesus' disciples that what they're doing, uh, who they've been interacting with. Notice they've interacted with lepers, tax collectors, Gentiles, uh, a woman who's been bleeding, and corpses. These are all things already in Mark's gospel they've interacted with. And, so, and now they find themselves not washing before they're eating. And so at this point, the Pharisees are just livid. They're like, you are living outside of what we view as what you need to be doing to be, to be clean. But when it came to the washing of the hands, Jesus points something out. He says, listen, this is not something found within the Torah, the law of Moses. This is rather within the, what they call the tradition of the elders. Now, let's keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that. But the tradition of the elders is what really governed their kind of rule of life. And so there was a belief that if you were a Pharisee, that when God gave Moses the Torah, the written word of God, it had the same weight as what was believed to be the oral tradition, um, which was passed down through Moses, and that's called the Mishnah. So the Pharisees held the Torah and the Mishnah in this, with the same value. Um, not all Jewish people did, but the Pharisees did. And so although washing your hands wasn't a part of the Torah, it was a part of the, what Jesus calls the tradition of the elders. And so Jesus does something here really, really unique. He says, listen, you, by, by holding on to these things that are outside of the written word of God, you are actually contradicting what God had given through Moses in the word. And as this is all unfolding before their eyes, he, he uses this word that I think should catch our attention. He says, you hypocrites. And the word hypocrites in the Greek was borrowed uh, from, from the the Greek theater. And so a hypocrite was someone who would wear a mask to play a role. And so Jesus would, looking at these people that were so concerned that the disciples were not following these cleanliness laws that weren't even laws, they're more traditions, and he looks at them and says, listen, you have, you're wearing a mask, you're playing a role, you are being wrapped up in the social pressures of the day, which for them happened to be hyper-religious. And in by calling him that, uh, the sense of like you're being a pretender, you're being wrapped up in this. I think there's, there's a lesson for us uh, in what Jesus is wanting to say here. 
uh, uh, there's a, a new movie out where Austin Butler plays uh, the lead character, um, portrays uh, the life of Elvis. And one of the interesting things that uh, journalists have noted is that the, the months after the movie was finished, is all the interviews with Austin Butler, is he didn't sound like himself. He sounded like uh, Elvis. And when asked about that, he just talks about this process where he literally stopped talking to his friends and family for two years while he played the role. He completely immersed himself in this new role. And so much so that it took him months to be able, like in his own words, to find himself again. And I think that's a good picture for us when these Pharisees are, by Jesus being called hypocrites, they're playing a role. And this role they're playing has become so potent that they don't know how to actually separate what's actually going on. And as, as I'm reading this text this week, it, there, there's something that I felt really challenged by is for the Pharisees, it was the tradition of the elders. And I just wanted to kind of just spend some time in prayer this week. Well, what are, what are the traditions of the elders of our day? Like, what are the things, what are the roles we play that become the most important things that maybe blind us to what's going on around us? And how do we identify those in such a way that it will allow us to be able to not get swept up in that? Let me just give you maybe four pressures that we can have, masks we can put on in our day and age uh, that might help us be able to contextualize this a little bit. Uh, for the Pharisees, it was the tradition of the elders. What's, what's that for us? So the four things I believe would be there's the religious tradition, the secular tradition, the success tradition, and the pleasure tradition. These are the, the four masks that it's easy to kind of put on that eventually they become us, and so we ultimately kind of miss the point. The first one just being this, this religious tradition. And if you're watching this and you kind of grew up maybe in a cultural Christianity and there's a sense that uh, there's this tradition wrapped up within, like uh, it's not so much even like the faith you have as much as the faith you're a part of. Uh, that can, and I know for me in my own life, that was without even knowing that I had just kind of seeped in. This is just kind of what I do and became more about that than even really who I was. Uh, in the world we live in, that's becoming less and less the strong cultural tradition around us. The other one is really prevalent. is just a secular tradition, which promotes this rugged individualism that has become kind of our current cultural's north star. It's, it's this sense of uh, whatever, is, uh, whatever is inhibiting my own sense of uh, self-identity and freedom is ultimately oppressive and I need to be able to like live into to this. And, and God or any sort of sacred order is going to actually stop me from being able to do this. Carlisle Truman in his amazing book, Strange New World, talks about this by saying, expressive individualism is the notion that I must truly, that I am most truly myself when I'm able to express outwardly what the voice of nature says to me inwardly. Doing that, to use modern parlance, is what makes me authentic. And so I just love this idea. It's uh, to, to belong to that tradition is to be able to express outwardly whatever the voice of nature says to me inwardly, that it's that rugged individual, individualism that ultimately guides me. 
I think in the world around us is also uh, kind of a success tradition. And success looks different depending on where you live and who you are. But ultimately, we live in a culture that's addicted to this. It becomes the mask that we wear, that we desire to be successful in whatever that looks like, whether that's in athletics or academics, whether it's financially, whether it's relationally. That we live in a culture that just praises that so much. If the Bible in 1 Peter 4, 8 says that love covers over a multitude of sins, this way of thinking would say success covers over a multitude of sins. The fourth way of living, that mask we can put on, is what I call just the pleasure tradition. Um, and I think this is really prevalent in San Diego especially. There is this sense that the thing we wear, the thing that we become kind of enraptured with, is this idea of pleasure, of what's going to make me uh, feel the best or numb the pain or make me escape. And we revolve our life around this thing that's going to make me have this certain sense of euphoria. And in recognizing that pleasure is not bad, uh, but ultimately it's, it's more that we settle for the things that we call pleasure. Um, C.S. Lewis puts it like this in his book, The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And so I guess the, the question is if, if is the way of Jesus upsetting to the certain masks we put on, that whatever that tradition, the cultural tradition that we have allowed to become us, is it a religious tradition, a secular, a success, a pleasure tradition? Is it this thing that just kind of becomes us? And so if I were to summarize this, the religious tradition says change yourself, do better, work harder. The secular tradition says free yourself. The success tradition says make yourself and the pleasure tradition says indulge yourself. And all of these things are vying for our allegiance and our identity. But in this story, when the Pharisees who belonged to a religious tradition could not, could not come to a place of understanding what Jesus was doing, what he does is rather than changing their behavior or challenging the symptoms, is he does something brilliant. Listen to the the verse that he quotes out of Isaiah 29, 13. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, the traditions of the day may look like we appear we have it all together. If the religious tradition makes us appear that way, oh yeah, of course, they're, they're good. The secular tradition is like, oh yeah, that makes sense too. I mean, this sense of rugged individualism, success. I mean, look at them. They're doing great pleasure, of course. You know, like it's fine. Just do whatever pleases you. But what we see here is Jesus says, is, it says, but their hearts are far from me. And then skipping down to verse 20, he says, he went on. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles a man's for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil comes. And so 
one of the things I wanted to talk about today is when we look at this verse in Mark chapter 7, is that there were things that have absolutely preoccupied to a point of obsession the culture of the day. And Jesus stops them in the middle of their tracks says, you, you don't get it. You're so consumed with this thing that you don't recognize that I'm after your heart. So I want to talk to you a little bit about what does it mean to not just have clean hands like they wanted Jesus' and disciples to do, but to actually have a clean heart. What does it look like for Jesus to say, you're so consumed with your traditions, but I'm after the inner part of who you are. One of the ways we can understand this from a biblical perspective, uh, which is helpful, is because the word heart in the Bible is used in a multitude of different ways and translated a few different ways. And so one of the best ways I've, I've seen this described is actually from Dallas Willard's book, Renovation of the Heart. And if you, you'll notice kind of the, the diagram on your screen, talks about how the inner core of who we are is our heart, it's our spirit, it's our, it's our will. And beyond that, we have our mind, which kind of involves our thoughts and our feelings, and then we have our body, and we have our social environment, and then what encompasses it all is our soul. But the heart is really this kind of the, the central operating system of our being. And I think it's so easy for us to be enraptured with behavior modification when Jesus is after heart transformation. Dallas Willard in his book says, The revolution of Jesus is in the first place and continuously a revolution of the human heart or spirit. It did not and does not proceed by means of the formation of social institutions and laws, the outer forms of our existence, intending that these would then impose a good order of life upon people who come under their power. Rather, his is a revolution of character, which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship to God and Christ and to one another. It is one that changes their ideas, beliefs, feelings, and habits and choices, as well as their bodily tendencies and social relations. It penetrates to the deepest layers of their soul. Why is Jesus so concerned with the heart? Because he wants to get to the root. He wants transformation in our innermost being. I mean, listen to just some of the ways the Bible talks about the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. Listen to this. For everything you do flows from it. 1 Samuel 6.17, when, when Samuel goes to anoint King David, says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Psalm 51.10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Luke 6.45, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings out evil things of the things stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Romans 10.9, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's, it's the belief at the center, the core of who we are. Last one, Luke 10.27 says, He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting the, the, the Shema. And 
So all throughout scriptures, there is this, this focus, this divine focus, not on the external conformity that goes on around us to the traditions of the elders or the traditions of the days or these cultural currents. Jesus is after the most inward part of who you are. And I just, my guess is, is that some of the frustration that you've sensed in your own walk with God has been in the symptomatic, behavioralistic tendencies you have. of Like, oh man, I did that again, or I said that again, or thought that again, or I feel this pressure from the outside, or I'm getting sucked into this thing. And I think the invitation of Jesus in, in Mark chapter 7 and to us today is to say, I, I want your heart I want the innermost part of who you are. And I don't want to settle for less. The word heart is used 1,000 times in Scripture, in both the Old and the New Testament. When Scripture talks about the heart, it talks about it in these different terms. It talks about it in, in the intellectual sense, how it perceives, it understands, it debates, it remembers, it thinks, it imagines um, it has technical skill. It talks about it being emotional. It says the heart experience intoxicated merriment, gladness, joy, sorrow, anguish, bitterness, anxiety, despair, love, trust, affection, lust, callousness, hatred, fear, jealousy, desire, discouragement, sympathy, anger, and irresolution. It talks about the heart in, in its volition, how the heart can have purpose, it's inclined, prompt, it's steadfast, it's willing, it's willful. It can contrive evil or follow its treasure. That the heart can be moral. That the heart can be gentle, lowly, holy, faithful, upright, pure, single-minded, clean, loving, evil, deceiving, deceitful. It can be lustful, it can impotent or arrogant. Nothing defiles a man but his own heart, it says in Mark chapter 7. And so there is this thing that if we don't let Jesus change our heart, we will constantly be falling into the trap of wearing the mask of the predominant pressure that we feel around us. And so I think the invitation that Jesus is extending to us today is where in your life have you tried to modify the externals of your life without experiencing the transformation of what's internally going on? And a great question is, well, how do you do that? Like, how do you not get swept up into just behavior modification or conforming to the culture around you, but having true, genuine internal transformation? Just, just six thoughts. Number one is our hearts won't change unless we have recognition. We need to recognize that we need to stop treating the symptoms and putting a Band-Aid on something that actually needs a deeper work. Once there's recognition, there can be the second thing, which is repentance. And repentance is when that inner part of who we are, after we've recognized what's, gone, what's, what's off and what's wrong, what's broken, that we turn, that we change, that we move towards what God has called us to do. And here's a really important point, is that this does not happen by guilt. It does not happen by shaming oneself. It happens, according to Romans chapter 2, by the kindness of God. That is what leads us to repentance. Once that there's a recognition of what's gone on, there's a repentance, there's a change inwardly to where we need to go, 
then begins a process of reliance that we ultimately, our repentance is leading us towards a reliance on God, a desperation for Him. But if, if you've done this before, you know that you can recognize the change in your heart that's needed. You can repent. You can even confess your reliance on God. But oftentimes we can fall back into just the old patterns and be swept into these old things. So the fourth thing that we desperately need is rhythms. We need practices, habits that reinforce the reliance that we need on Jesus. And after we have those rhythms established, what we will find is a sense of relationship. That the ultimate goal of a changed heart is not for people to act better. It's for people to be loved and to love more deeply. That's what Jesus is ultimately after. And the sixth thing is what happens when we have recognition, repentance, reliance, new rhythms and relationship is we experience renewal. And, and I know this is a quick, oversimplified overview of how our heart can change. But my hope is that we would be moving away from just trying to change the, the externals and we would invite the work of the Holy Spirit to change what's going on inside. Which just kind of leads to my last point is that if we keep thinking that the change and transformation in our heart is contingent on our own willpower, our own strength, our own level of guilt, uh, we will continue to be disappointed in the actual transformation that's happening. Because what we have to realize is not only how does our heart change, but what is our heart changing into? And if we understand what our heart is changing into, we also discover the means in which it changes. And ultimately, my friends, that is Jesus. Our heart is not just to be changed into a better version of us. Our heart is to be changed into the image of Christ's likeness. And the change into Christ's likeness. And the only way that happens is that when we receive his love. In our Lectio Divina reading this week, we read this week that love comes from God, that he is the one who generates that inside us, ultimately proving to that on the cross. And so again, as we look at this story of Mark chapter 7, of this debate of why don't you follow this tradition and why don't you have this external behavior and Jesus, you don't get it, I want your heart, that we have to recognize that that is only found, the hope of a changed heart is only found within the initiative of Jesus' love towards you. And so that you just begin right there, that you recognize what Jesus has done for you. And by recognizing what he's done for you, you can then respond in such a way that allows those things to change. And so just, just some practical things before we end. Uh, I would encourage you just to, just to take a look at your life and to see if there's any sort of uh, hypocritical masks you've been wearing. Some things that Jesus would just gently want to invite you to take off. What are the things in your life that you've been running on autopilot that has not had your heart in it. And after you take some time to really evaluate that, what would it look like for you just to confess those things to the Lord? Say, Jesus, I've been, I've been running 
hard in this way, and maybe they're even good things. After morality and religiosity, after individual freedom, after a version of success, or after pleasures that I want in my life, but ultimately what I need is you. Ultimately what I need is for you to come in and change my heart. And I think once you can confess that to Jesus, my encouragement to you is just to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And as you invite the Holy Spirit to come and bring renewal in, in your own heart, the last thing I would just say is we change most rapidly and most and with greatest longevity in the context of community. So who are the people that you can share uh, what God is wanting to change at a deep and inward level and as you share those things with them, invite them on that journey with you. Invite them to, to, to share what's going on in their own life because I think that I think one of the greatest tragedies that can take place is for us to just enter or keep living this life on autopilot and not actually engaging in the deeper transformative work that Jesus is after. Remember, Jesus in this moment, he says, listen, you, you don't get it. It's not about washing hands before you meal. It's not even about this cold cleanliness law. You're trying to figure out, I want your heart. So what would he be saying to you? He says, no, no, you, you don't get it. It's not about that promotion you're chasing. It's not about that sense of security you're grasping for. It's not about that relationship you're obsessing over. It's not, no, you don't get it. I want your heart. I want you, the inner part of you. I want that to experience transformation at a deeper level. And recognizing that that happens when we invite the deeper work of the Holy Spirit to come and shape us, not into some ambiguous changed heart, no, no, into the image of Jesus. And when we do that, um, we will begin to start to be able to answer the question, who is Jesus, even more. Who is Jesus? He's the one who wants your heart more than anything else. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you so much that you are... You're running after us, Lord Jesus. God, that you're wanting more than the, the change in our kind of externals in our life. Lord, you want the deeper transformation internally in our heart and spirit. God, we recognize that that does not happen on our own. Lord Jesus, that happens, Lord God, as a result of you working in our heart deeply through your Holy Spirit, Lord God, us yielding to that work, living honestly in the context of community, Lord, and continuing to pursue you and the strength that you've given us. So, Lord, I pray that whoever's watching this, Lord Jesus, whoever's listening to this, God, that there would just be a deep sense of longing, of, of confession, Lord God, of I've been chasing other things, peripheral things, external things. I've been wearing masks. And Lord, I need a new heart. So Lord, I can't do that. They can't do that. Only you can turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit, in the power of the name of Jesus, would you come and bring about a new heart? Lord God, that lasts more than just a moment, but extends for the rest of our lives into eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.